Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. another edition Hot of Gold Extra Point with the South Bend Tribune's ND Insider Carl, Carter Carls. My name is Tom Noy, Notre Dame Insider, South Bend Tribune sports columnist. Here to dissect up, down, left, right, in, out. The thrilling, the exhilarating, the scintillating 12-7 Notre Dame victory over Louisville Saturday at windblown Notre Dame Stadium. Hey, Carter, did you know it was windy on Saturday? Did you happen to, to, to catch that on the telecast? Yeah, that's that's what I heard from from many. It sounded a little bit like an excuse, yes. uh, if you're asking me. <laughs> okay, I'm asking you this. Let's start with this first before we dive into 12-7 Notre Dame. Notre Dame scores one touchdown, no extra point, two field goals. That's it, 12-7. They beat Louisville. The Irish – Currently, fourth ranked in the country as we tape this at 9.30 on Sunday morning. That may change when the polls come out because Georgia, the number three team in the country, lost to second ranked Alabama late Saturday night. So the Irish may move up to three. They may stay at four. They may jump Ohio State or Ohio State may jump them, which is kind of odd because how many games has Ohio State played? Remind me. Um, Zero. (laughs) <laughs> Zero. So I don't know how that would happen in the AP poll. We would have to get uh, our fellow ND insider, Eric Hansen, on an Associated Press voter to explain that. But we'll see where Notre Dame goes from here on Sunday when the polls come out. But the Irish moved to 4-0 overall. They're 3-0 in the ACC, beating Louisville. Louisville drops to 1-4 overall and 0-4 in the league. We'll start with this. If you're a Notre Dame fan, if you're a Notre Dame follower, where is your concern level right now four weeks into the season? Is it, ah, that's just one game, everything will be okay? Is it, man, they got a lot of work to do? Or, holy cow, Clemson might hang 70 on them next month. Where's the concern level right now? Not quite on the last one, just yet. <laughs> Teetering I'll... on the last one? Teetering? <laughs> well, the defense wasn't what looked bad. It was the, the offense. I think what is the biggest concern is the hope was Ian Book was going to take a progression, right? He was just going to get better every week. He was going to get better at the deep shots. I felt like last week against Florida State, you saw the offense take a jump. You saw the offense take some deep shots to Javon McKinley. Uh, you saw Braden Lindsey get a little bit involved in the intermediate passing game. We didn't see that this week. We, you know, Ian Book was was way off target on a lot of his throws. Uh, there are some drops. I think there are about five or six uh, targets to, to Javon McKinley that fell incomplete, that he either dropped or were just heavily contested. Uh, it was just not a good day for that passing game. 
And, you know, Louisville's defense had been torched all year. I mean, they were giving up 40 points. They gave up 52 to Miami. Um, I mean, a lot of their games were track meets. So for this to be a 12-7 game was extremely weird. Uh, overall, a weird game. I think if you were going to give this a positive spin, like if you were going to say, okay, well, but this. <laughs> the, the well but is – this was an extremely weird game where it was about ball control and sustaining drives. Both teams only had seven possessions. Louisville only had 45 plays. Mm-hmm. Um, Notre Dame had uh, three drive, four drives that were at least 12 plays, and they had three drives that lasted at least seven minutes, which, I mean, how, how many games do you have that when you're only talking about seven possessions as well? So, at the end of the day, Notre Dame's offense was able to kind of win this at the, at the end, having that, that drive at the end that was over seven minutes, uh, sustaining these drives. They kept their defense off the field. So, that's maybe the positive spin, but there were a lot of negatives for sure, especially with the passing game. Yeah, when you talk about the yeah, but, I think the yeah, but for me would be the last drive where it's a key third down you got to convert that, otherwise Lowell is going to get the ball back. And they find – Ian Book finds Javon McKinley for seven yards on third and six. Then it's third and whatever again, and he finds Ben Skoranek for another first down to keep that drive moving. Louisville's got to burn its timeouts. They wind up running the clock down. Ian Book takes the knee, and it's over with. But, yeah, like you said, the wide receivers are where – Javon McKinley coming off a game against Florida State where he made five catches for 107 yards, he made one catch on Saturday. And he had a chance to make seven or eight. Yep. So the wide receivers, man, you got to be better than that. Ben Skoranek and Avery Davis tied for the team lead in receptions. Both of them had two. And those, those four receptions from the two of them went for a grand total of 45 yards. So that passing game is not going to strike fear in the hearts of, of many defensive coordinators the way they played on Saturday. No, and I just – there's so many problems with, with – the wide receivers and with Ian Book, you know, at, at times you you see it's not like they have problems creating separation at times. Ian Book either just misses them, mm-hmm. fails to anticipate them on time, or uh, just misses them altogether. I think there was a time Michael Mayer had some sort of wheel route or some sort of sideline route, and Book threw it a tick too late, and it was nearly intercepted. But it was almost him, pick six. Yeah, had he hit him a little bit before – I mean, you're talking about maybe a 15, 20-yard play. Uh, there, are, there are instances like that where, you know, if there were quicker decisions, if the ball was out of the hands a little bit quicker, or if the, the pass is just a little bit more accurate, then you're talking about a big play. And I think they're leaving plays on the field. I remember when Chase Claypool was in the draft process last year, the, the positive for him was – what we heard from so many draft scouts were, well, a lot of plays were left on the field. He could have had, for all that Claypool did last year, he could have done way more because he was either missed or he wasn't anticipated right or he, he would be wide open and he wasn't thrown to. Now you're starting to kind of see that this year, but not mm-hmm. just with one guy, with a lot of guys. Um, and so, yeah, I think – 
I think that's an issue. I mean, I, I, you have to consider, okay, now this is a new cast of receivers, the chemistry, the off season, all that. But when you're a three year starter, you know, so, after a while, the excuses kind of run out and it's, it's kind of on you to perform. And at some point, so does the newness with the wide receivers. Like I, I understand all the talk of the start and the stop and the sluggishness of trying to find a rhythm with this season because of COVID and everything and taking those two weeks off, not being able to, to really get connected. But we're sitting here, it's October 18th. Like you should already have, you should have some sort of, uh, of connection with Ben Skoranek or Michael Mayer or Tommy Tremble, who again, like remember, remember the first two weeks of the season, it was all Tommy Tremble this and it was Tommy Tremble yep. that. And where's Tommy Tremble? He's doing this for them. He's blocking. He's coming out of the backfield as a, as a lead blocker. He's catching passes. Tommy Tremble, again, he was kind of an afterthought on Saturday. One catch, four yards. Michael Mayer, one catch, 12 yards. If Louisville's going to blitz the way they did and, tr- and force Ian Book to make quick decisions, I think somewhere along the line, you've got to get that screen game going with the tight ends, with the running backs out of the backfield, and to keep that defense a little more honest. I think that, de- that Louisville defense was basically looking like, hey, we can just we, we can just turn it loose and just go because they're not going to throw the ball down the field. Their longest completion was 16 yards to, to Skoranek late in the game. So I don't know what they're what's going on with the passing game. Like it, they they almost we hear so much just constantly about this offensive line and how it's you know they have all five starters back. They're one of the top lines in the country. Man, they do this, they do that. Then Notre Dame comes out on Saturday. They throw the ball three of the first four plays. They have seven passes on their first drive, really, and they were trying for an eighth because Ian Book got sacked on that drive as well. So how about establishing the run and just go down the field and just maul those guys? And then when you know that you can pick up six, seven, eight yards every time you run the ball behind that offensive line, then start chipping away at the passing game. But when you do what what, what – Tommy Reese and Ian Book tried to do on Saturday and establish the, the pass first, that kind of gets the, the, the run game and the power game and the manhandle game that we saw against Florida State, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I think a lot of that happened on Saturday. Yeah, I think we saw that a little bit against South Florida, Florida State, where they come out aggressive. It's kind of like you, you pass to set up the run. Uh, but it it seemed like Tommy Reese was was shell shocked at times. I mean, yeah. Louisville was bringing a lot of pressure, and Notre Dame didn't seem to know uh, how to handle it. You know, some cornerback blitzes and some exotic things like that. Um, and yeah, I, I think when you looked at Louisville's defense the last few weeks, you saw the weakness being their secondary. I mean, I, I recall a play against Miami where uh, we we talked about it a couple of weeks ago where the guy. Mm-hmm. I caught it, you know, 40 yards down the field and there was no one else on the screen because he was just that uncovered. Um, and so, you know, I, I think they, they thought that that was the weakness and it was the weakness, but, you know, after a while you kind of have to adjust. And I, I felt like it took a little bit for them to adjust and finally say, okay, yeah, we, we got to run the football. Um, now, luckily I think, they, they did get to a point where they did that, and then it helped them out, leaning on Kyron Williams, Chris Tyree. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a stat that I had at the end of the game. I, just, I was just curious. Um, I combined all of the wide receivers' catches this year, 23 catches, 
259 yards, two touchdowns. Chase Claypool through the first four games of last season, 21 catches, 286 yards, one touchdown. And, you know, that's not counting Chris Fink, Cole Komet, some of those other guys. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the number one issue for this offense, not just Ian Book, but the wide receivers too. It, it's not just one guy. It, it's multiple guys. Um, I think slot receiver has been incredibly unproductive this year. Um, we have not seen Avery Davis or L- Lawrence Keyes really do anything. Uh, Javon McKinley, that was a bad game for him. He, he just wasn't in sync with Ian Book. And then Braden Lindsay, where is he? I mean, I just uh, – <laughs> we barely saw him yesterday. Uh, Brian Kelly said it was a soft tissue injury. Um, I think that's the, the biggest thing, keeping him from being a featured guy is just health and consistency. Um, Kevin Austin, you saw a lot of people um, kind of uh, talk about that and, and mention, hey, where is he? I think it's just going to take some time for him to ease back. Mm-hmm. You know, his injury is, is not one to mess with where you just play 100 snaps and, and go all out. You, you kind of have to ease the guy back. And he definitely got a few looks that, that I was liking. But um, ultimately – once this team plays some really good defenses, you'd like to see Austin be that featured number one guy. You'd like to see Lindsey be a hundred percent. You'd like to see McKinley make some of those contested catches. We'll see if they can get there, but I think this was a big step back for them offensively. And here's the thing. When you bring up the Chase Claypool stat, the big separation, Chase Claypool was a pro. Like you could see that last year. You could see that at the end of his junior year that he was going to play on Sundays in some way, shape, or form. These guys aren't pros. Like, these guys aren't NFL-type receivers that you need to have if you're the fourth-ranked team in the country and you have designs on playing for a college football national championship this year. They're okay. Like, Ben Skoranek, he's all right. Avery Davis, I'm, I'm really not – I've never been sold on Avery Davis being a top-flight wide receiver. Like, he could be a third string. He could be, a, like, a, a good fit-in guy. But then, like, we're not, not much – from Kevin Austin, a guy that we talked all about the, the first game of the season, Joe Wilkins Jr., again, no catches. Like, he he was more of a stopgap guy against Duke because he needed to be in there when Skoranek got hurt. Kevin Austin was still out. Joe Wilkins disappeared, and maybe it's maybe it's just the, the, the staff thinking we got to get some of these other guys going. Like we said, Javon McKinley, you've, you need to piggyback. When you go for five and 107 yards the previous week, you need to piggyback that with another solid game, four catches, 80 yards, big catches in traffic, big plays made. Javon McKinley not able to do that. So a lot of this goes back to Ian Book. Like everybody talks about, well, Ian Book can't do this, and Ian Book can't do that. Does Ian Book really have a receiver that he trusts right now where he can just go to and say, first down, second down, third down, whatever it is, I'm going to this guy or that guy, and he's going to make the catch. Now, to be fair – Ian Book's got to make those throws, and a lot of times he's not making the simple throws. He's not making easy throws. He's 11 of 19 for 106 yards. But at the end of the day, when a play needs to be made, there's Ian Book making the play and going 24 and 3 as a starter. That's that's what I'm going to hold on to with Ian Book. I know the noise about Ian Book saying he doesn't do this and he doesn't do that, but with this football team, Ian Book's 24 and 3. Take it and run with it. Yeah, everything with book is kind of like a, this is really great, 
but this is really bad. I mean, right. it's just, it's, it's always a, wow. He's a, like, and you can even hear it from Brian Kelly. It's like, well, a win is a win. Well, it's hard to win. And winning's hard, Carter. Winner, winning's hard. Winning's hard. Yeah. But it, there's always kind of an asterisk there. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, but he's never beaten an elite defense before. He just hasn't. He has never beaten a statistically elite defense. I think next week, everyone talks about the Clemson game, but next week is going to be a huge week for Notre Dame. Pittsburgh heading into the weekend, number two in rush defense. It's Notre Dame's first true road game. I think that's going to be a huge test for this team, and I think Notre Dame's really going to have to uh, prove themselves through the air. If if you are Notre Dame, and, and this has become sort of a popular question, um, I understand why people ask it. I understand why people dismiss it, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. You're Notre Dame. Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts, at what point do you just try to work them in and see what they're made of, even if it's four plays, even if it's a jet sweep to Xavier Watts or a, a, scre- a tunnel screen to, to Jordan Johnson, at what point do you at least attempt that to see if they're made of something and to see if, if they could be better than what is currently on the field right now. I think that that chance was South Florida. When you knew you were going to win that game. And it, I mean, this is what we see from Notre Dame for so long of not getting true freshmen on the field early to see what they can do. Because now, now you're, you're kind of stuck. You're not going to give, you're not going to give either of those two freshman wide receivers more chances or more opportunity your first road game of the season. Like, who knows if either of those two are even going to be on a travel squad. We have no idea if they're even going to make the trip to Pittsburgh on Saturday. We have no idea if they're going to make the trip to Atlanta the, the previous, or the next week against Georgia Tech. And then the next week, they're certainly not going to play against Clemson. So when you're pounding a team like South Florida and you're up, you're going to wind up winning that game 52 to nothing. That's the time that you get those freshmen on the field just to get a little taste. Because they haven't had – I mean, Jordan Johnson, yeah, he had a cameo, and he had he, – I think against South Florida, and he had the one penalty, the unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. But you, I just don't know how you can just all of a sudden say, okay, we're going on the road for the first time. Let's look at these freshmen. Or we're going on the road for the second time against Georgia Tech. Let's give them a little bit more – a few more snaps. So I think that window to see Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts that's about closed right now for this season. As disappointing as it is, get them on the field early against Duke. Get them on the field a little bit more against South Florida. And then maybe you see what you have. Get them on the field for a couple of snaps when you're rolling offensively against Florida State because mid-October is not the time to be saying, all right, let's turn it over and see what these freshmen might have. Yeah, and I think there's such a log jam on the outside right now, especially with Braden Lindsey and Kevin Austin coming back, Jordan Johnson's chance really was early in the year where there was no Austin, no Lindsey, Skaronics out, and he just got beat. You know, it was Joe Wilkins, Javon McKinley. It was other guys that were getting more tilt. So that, that was kind of a missed opportunity for him. Not, not totally counted out on him yet. A lot, of, a lot of true freshmen do sometimes work their way in at the end of the season, once they've kind of got their feet under them. I remember uh, in 2018, uh, I I believe Joe Wilkins 
and, and even maybe Braden Lindsay were supposed to play against Clemson. Uh, I think Wilkins was, but it, maybe he got hurt or something. Uh, but anyways, just I think I think he can maybe get there at the end of the year. We'll see uh, to where where he's seeing a couple plays. Xavier Watts is the weird one to me. Uh, I was pretty high on him. I I just not huge on the slot receivers at all. They're they're really just gadget <laughs> players. They're they're really just jet sweep guys. They're gadget guys. Yeah, and I wrote about this a little bit last week. Uh, looking at slot receivers under Brian Kelly. No slot receiver has had at least 50 catches. Mm-hmm. No slot receiver has had more than 575 yards. Chris Fink has been the most productive slot receiver to ever ha- happen at, 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 at Notre Dame under Kelly, and he was a former walk-on. And so they just haven't had like a blue-chip guy. They haven't had a super productive guy. I think next year they're going to have Lorenzo Styles, who will enroll a semester early, and I think it's such a poor position for Notre Dame right now that I think Lorenzo Styles could conceivably either start or at least get some legitimate playing time next year um, because he's, he's just such an incredible athlete. You know, he, he might end up being a top 50 overall player uh, on Rivals.com. But I think Xavier Watts is also a really great athlete. You know, coming out of Omaha, Nebraska, uh, he was – really an all-state caliber player on offense and defense. He was someone that could play cornerback for Notre Dame. But at slot receiver, I just wonder at what point you give him a look because it's just not working with Avery Davis and Lawrence Keyes. Was Xavier Watts uh, early enrollee? He was, yeah. He, he was? Yep. Now that's – see, then that's also a case where he – probably could have benefited from spring practice and made that jump and cemented the confidence of the coaching staff with all those practices that he didn't get in April to the point where when August rolls around and Kevin Austin goes down and Braden Lindsay goes down. Okay. Now we know what we have in Xavier Watts, but no spring practice that wiped out, I think any chance of Xavier Watts finding his way into this receivers rotation. For sure. You know what? It's another weird thing I'm, I'm, I don't really understand is is their punt return this is just a random <laughs> thought but why do they have a walk-on back there I mean I, no offense to Matt Salerno and I know a lot of the walk-ons there uh, have been successful and that they're high on that kid and I'm sure he does a good job in practice but how is how is Avery Davis uh Lawrence Keyes um Braden Lindsay, Chris Tyree, Kyron Williams. I mean, it feels like there's a endless guys that you can choose from, and I just don't really understand what they're doing. And they're not even attempting to catch any of their punts. That's the thing. Like, it's not it's not an area where they feel like, hey, let's put let's put one of our main running backs and Kyron Williams or Chris Tyree back there, and maybe they'll break a play. Or let's put Braden Lindsay back there, and maybe he'll break one. They just don't even give that any consideration as to that could be a that could be an area where they could get a decent return. It's who's going to go back there and make the safe play, raise their right hand, make the fair catch, not fumble it, not do anything dumb back there. And it's it's like who like we we saw what Lawrence Keys did. Lawrence Keys, I know he had the he also had the concussion against Florida State, but did. But did Lawrence Keys get taken off the punt return team 
because A, he had the concussion, or B, because he had the problems against Florida State. Like, it's just, it's just something where it's not a part of their game for whatever reason. Just have a guy go back there, make the catch, and then let's get our offense on the field and get rolling. Yeah, I mean, I remember with Chris Fink last year, I mean, it just didn't seem like he returned many kicks. Uh, and a lot of fair catches or just letting it roll kind of thing. Salerno was playing even before Florida State operant at, at, at kick returns. So, yeah, just something to kind of watch and, and consider. You know, why is this not happening? Uh, I think overall, though, that the game was, was good for the defense. I, I, I really liked what I saw from the defense against Louisville. And I thought it was really important, again, the yeah, but thing with the offense. <laughs> Keeping the defense off the field, 45 plays. A lot of the people on defense were still either rotating or getting back to speed after, you know, 39 players being in contact tracing or, or, or testing positive, being quarantined or in isolation. So it was kind of good to not play 90 snaps against a high-powered Louisville offense. It was good to not give up many plays, only three plays – of at least 15 yards for Louisville. Uh, and so I liked the performance from Notre Dame. You know, I, I, I kind of sat in on the Louisville's press conference and head coach Scott Satterfield was just saying, yeah, you know, they're playing deep. Their defensive backs were lining up deep. You know, you saw Kyle Hamilton uh, shadowing Tutu Atwell sometimes uh, and did a pretty great job. And so they were just going to limit the big plays. JB and Hawkins was the – seventh most leading rusher in college football last year. Tutu Atwell led the ACC in yards per game, 98.2 yards per game. Big play, guys. Notre Dame stymied both of them, did a really great job. Uh, and, you know, can't say enough about Carkley, the job he's done. That's 29 out of 30 games where they've uh, only allowed 30 points or fewer. Um, and – Certainly the time of possession, game flow, and everything had to do with that too. But ultimately, Notre Dame did not give up many big plays. Okay. I know it's early, but I'm going to give you a test. You ready for it? Uh-oh. Here are the top three tacklers for Notre Dame. What do they all have in common? Tariq Bracey, Sean Crawford, Kyle Hamilton. Yeah. Tick, 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 tick. Your answer. I think they're defensive backs. There you go. Ding, 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 ding. That's that's a concern for me where your yeah. top three tacklers are all DBs. Like, where are the linebackers? Where's Drew White? Jack Lamb, two tackles. <laughs> so much was made in postgame. I know you didn't listen to the Notre Dame postgame, but so much, so much was made of, of Dalen Hayes blowing up that screen pass against Louisville and taking that, knocking that guy into next week. That was Dalen Hayes' only tackle. He had one tackle yesterday. So – yeah, the defense played well. The DBs, they made most of the tackles. you got to have your guys, your Drew Whites, your Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoas in there, your, your buck linebacker, whoever that may be, making more tackles than what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, it's, see, to me, it's it, it's kind of strange. Like, okay, we knew Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoas was going to be amazing, and he has. We knew Kyle Hamilton would be amazing. He has. Um Sean Crawford has been up and down, in my opinion. I think there's times where he struggled to tackle or he struggled in coverage. I thought he had a great game against Louisville, a great bounce-back game. And I think overall he's going to be pretty good for this defense. The surprises to me have been Tariq Bracey, Nick McLeod, 
I think they've been pretty good this year uh, for the most part uh, in coverage. Nick, Nick McLeod, I, I really like how he can contest uh, balls and traffic. Uh, hasn't gotten his hands on a ball yet. I think that's kind of the biggest concern is this secondary just does not generate turnovers. But they don't get beat deep much. And, you know, they don't give up big plays. And I think that's all you can ask for. The concern has been the front seven with tackling and with penetration and wreaking havoc. Not a lot of sacks this year, it doesn't seem like. Not a lot of, uh, of, of big run stops uh, at the second level. You know, Drew White and, and the Buck linebacker group just haven't been flashing like they did last year. Um, and, it, and it makes me continue to wonder if Jack Kaiser is the best Buck linebacker that they have. Um, after what we saw him do against South Florida. I think they were working him back. Uh, he was only going to play a limited amount of plays. He even played a little rover against Louisville. Uh, but I wonder if, okay, we've seen a lot of Simon now. We've seen a lot of Lufau now. Haven't seen a lot of Kaiser, and when we have seen him, he's played pretty well. Um, I think at least against the run, when you're talking about running situations first and second down, that's a that's the Kaiser down. When it's third down and long, that's the down. You take out the linebacker. You get in a dime package. Mm-hmm. You put Owusu Koromoa at nickel. Maybe you put Simon on the field for your more athletic look. But I think when it comes to stopping the run, when it comes on those early downs, Kaiser might be their best option. Uh, so, I don't know. Something to kind of watch out for because that position has not been very productive this year. And no sacks yesterday from the Notre Dame defense. They did not get to Malik Cunningham. Defensively, yeah, they played pretty well. But you have to think where Louisville might have been had Cunningham not gone out of the game. Because when he went out of the game, whether it was a sprained ankle or they were talking about cramps, they were also talking about he had cramps in his throwing arm. Louisville's offense had a little something going there. They got a little confidence. They got a rhythm to themselves. And had Notre Dame's defense back on its heels, and then Cunningham goes out. They bring in the backup quarterback. Backup quarterback was like it was like you or I trying to play quarterback at that point. That guy had no idea what he was doing. Speak for yourself. Oh, so you'd be out there just throwing it all around. You'd be like Patrick Mahomes, right? Probably not. (laughs) So Louisville, they lose Cunningham, and then also, how much momentum would would they have generated had they been able? to recover the onside kick and not get that penalty. So Louisville, uh, Notre Dame's defense, they played pretty well. But I think Louisville did a lot to kind of help them not where the Cardinals weren't able to really get momentum and grab a hold of this game when this game was there for taking there early in the second half. You mentioned the onside kick and huge, huge break for Notre Dame. Massive. Um, and, And what set that up a little bit too uh, well, maybe not set it up, but what would what, have furthered the damage was the fake field goal attempt. Let's, let's talk mm-hmm. about that. I mean, Brian Kelly said that they saw a weakness in Louisville special teams on film that they felt like they could exploit with that play. It was fourth and nine inside the 20. They had a chip shot field goal opportunity uh, to go up two possessions. I believe it was nine. It would have been nine Oh at that time. They run with Jay Bramlett. They use Jonathan Dorr as like a seal blocker. Um, and yeah, that's not happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I tweeted. I, I felt like we learned from Alabama that that's just not a good idea from you know the college football playoff that one year where they did that. But boy, I mean, maybe if you pass or if you're running in that situation, it's fourth and five. But fourth and nine, running with your your punter. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, in, in my opinion, with the way the defense has been playing, you just take your points. And it ended up being a four-point play because they went for two later on and didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And so you bluff four, four points on the board. The final score could have been 16-17, to 17, and they wouldn't have to worry about holding on to the football for eight minutes to end the game. It, it, it would have been – that was just a rare coaching gaffe. I just – it was it was beyond me why they would even attempt that, um, and they are extremely lucky that it did not end up hurting them. Because if it did, I think that's all we would be talking about. If if Louisville goes on to win that game, thirteen twelve, fifteen twelve, all we are talking about is that field goal today, that fake field goal, and I think they're pretty fortunate that that you know we didn't mention it until thirty minutes in. <laughs> Well, you said it was what? It was fourth and nine? Fourth and nine. And Bramlett picked up seven. But the camera angle that NBC showed, it was hard to see what Brian Kelly and Brian Polian might have seen on camera because – or seen on film and then seen it in the game because the camera angle from NBC was the end zone shot. So all you see, saw was Jay Bramlett trying to just – trying to pick a hole and, and run through a bunch of guys. You didn't see the usual sideline shot to see, okay – that's where the hole might have been, or maybe that's what they'd, they'd seen. So it was hard to really understand what Notre Dame saw to try that fake field goal. But I agree with you. Like, a game like that where your offense is, is just I – th- I think, I think they, they tried, to, tried to do it the way they did against Duke where they had the fake punt. Maybe the, maybe the fake field goal will ignite us and we'll get back on track and Tommy Reese will fall into a, a play-calling rhythm like he was in against Florida State the previous week. But – game like that where you're not doing anything offensively, take the points and, and play defense because like we were told afterward, Carter, winning is hard. It's, it's hard. Uh, it's hard. I think with, when it comes to like analytical things and special teams weirdness, you have to be kind of consistent in your thinking. And I thought the decision to fake the punt against Duke was a weird one because it was like fourth and 15 from their own 20 the, in the yeah, first quarter. Uh, a lot of times when you take a risk like that, if you get it, it's the best decision ever. If you don't get it, it's the worst decision ever. Just being consistent with the thinking. I thought that was weird, and I thought this was weird. And so I think, I think there might be an overconfidence with, with Jay Bramlett. Uh, I think he is a really good athlete. He was a high school quarterback. Really great quarterback in Tuscaloosa, um, and and Notre Dame pulled him out of Bama's backyard, and I think that they they are very confident in his athletic ability, and he he showed like you know for a punter he can really put on the Jets, he can throw it. Um, still waiting to see how he can sling it. I think that that'll be fun, but I think there's you can be overzealous at times if uh, you're going for it in these situations when you really don't have to go for it. You talk about Jay Bramlett and his athleticism. Did you see who played backup quarterback when Clemson was was boat racing Georgia Tech yesterday, seventy three to seven, and Trevor Lawrence finally went out of the game? 
their punter, right? It was their backup. It was their punter. Like, let's just put the punter in and have him run some plays. Oh, my. 73-7 to for Clemson over a team that last week beat Louisville by 19 points. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. And you mentioned Notre Dame had seven possessions total. Seven possessions total on Saturday. Clemson scored seven touchdowns on its seven possessions against Georgia Tech, all in the first half. So you know what the, the game—it almost felt like a, a Navy game for Notre Dame, where it's just like time of possession, ball control. We're just going to control this game, and I think with the running game, they're going to look like that at times this year. So maybe they're going to be in a lot of games that are closer than you'd think like the Duke game, where it's always going to be within reach, but they're going to win all these games because they're, at the end of the day, going to convert those third downs. They're going to be controlling the ball. I don't know. I think that's, that's something to kind of watch. Uh, one thing I did want to mention to you real quick, we, we saw Florida State beat North Carolina last night. Uh, I think it's easy to kind of believe, um, oh, that helps Notre Dame, right? It's Florida State. <laughs> Notre Dame just beat them. I think it hurts them in a big way because if they do not beat Clemson, what is their best win? What's their best criteria to get into the playoff or, or you know, to, to just cement themselves as a top team? Their best win very well could be North Carolina. But if North Carolina crawls to the end of the year with two or three losses, you know, they might only have one win over a ranked team, and that ranked team is – number 22 in the nation or whatever it might be. So I think if you're Notre Dame, you got to be huge North Carolina fans the rest of the year or, you know, or someone else on the schedule, maybe Pittsburgh or someone like that, Boston College. Um, but I think that hurts them. You know, Florida State winning that game, even if they went out, you know, at seven and three, I guess they'd be ranked, but – not super highly, I wouldn't think. So I, I just I think it was a it was bad for Notre Dame. They wanted North Carolina to finish the year nine and one with one loss to Notre Dame, and they don't get that opportunity now. Well, you talk about their best win. Let's say they don't beat Clemson at Notre Dame Stadium in a couple of weeks. Their best win or potential best win will be the rematch against Clemson and Charlotte for the ACC championship. Like yeah. that would be for Notre Dame. That would be their playoff game. Like it's either you're going to beat Clemson and have a really good chance of going to the college football playoff or you lose to Clemson and you're going to play, you're going to play like USC in the Fiesta Bowl. That's their college football playoff. If they play again on December 19th in Charlotte. Correct. And I guess I should have added, this is contingent on winning one game against Clemson in terms of, okay, if, if, if you can get it into the playoff as a one-loss team, you got to have some good wins. You mm -hmm. also have to have some luck. Um, this year is going to be extremely, extremely hard to kind of figure out for the committee with how, how few games the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are going to have. You know what happens if Oregon's 8-0 and Notre Dame is 11-1 with a loss but a win to Clemson? Uh, or Ohio State uh, finishes undefeated, um, or a Big 12 team has one loss, or there's two SEC teams, Bama and, you know, for all we know, uh, 
Florida or A and M could finish the year with one loss. Uh, who? Who? A and what? Who? You got to throw the Aggies in there, don't you? I have to. You just have to. You just. Be, I knew it would come around to that. They might be favored in every game the rest of the year. I'm just gonna say. Uh, but, anyways, it's all gonna be about who who they're competing against and what schedule and strength of schedule and best wins. If they have one loss and one win to Clemson, that's great. But what about after that? They right. would they would have maybe no other ranked wins if North Carolina falls off the uh, falls goes off the rails. So again, I just I think it's it, this year more than any other. I think Notre Dame's kind of like rooting for the teams that they beat, and and it's it's just a weird year being in the ACC where you're kind of like rooting for the conference and hoping that the teams you're playing are great. Clemson beat Miami which that might end up being a bigger win than North Carolina or maybe not. Who knows? Um, so it's going to be weird to, to figure out, but I think the best thing you can do is put yourself in the best position. The eye test is huge. You know, having like, you don't want to get blown out by Clemson one of those times. You'd mm-hmm. rather a loss be close, uh, a good loss, which I hate that, that phrase. But um, anyways, just something to, to keep in mind. And the worst possible scenario for Notre Dame this season was the fact that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten came back to play football. Because I, I know you're a Big 12 guy, but no, I'm not a Big 12 guy. The Big, the Big 12 stinks. They don't deserve to be at the, the college football playoff table. So no, it would be two teams from the ACC, Clemson, Notre Dame, and two teams from the SEC in the college football playoff. It was easy. Like yeah. the, that was that was your final four. But now you're going to throw Oregon into the mix. You're going to throw Ohio State in the mix. That's going to that's gonna really put the pressure on Notre Dame not only to play really well against Clemson, like you said, but A, don't get blown out at home or in Charlotte if you happen to meet, and B, you're going to have to beat them once, at least once, if, you, if you're going to get a, a shot at the college football playoffs. So worst possible scenario that the Big 12 – or the Big 12, the Big 10, and the Pac-12 came back to play football this fall for Notre Dame. Yeah, and, you know, if you're a Notre Dame fan, you, you kind of want everyone to beat each other. You kind of want the chaos to ensue. I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you got to be a big Bama fan. you you got to hope that they went out and beat Georgia or Florida in, in the championship game. Because the worst-case scenario is, like, make it in the championship game and Georgia beats them. Because then you got to put mm-hmm. both in the playoff. Yep. Or – you know, you got to hope that Texas A&M loses one more game or Florida loses one more game, whether that be Georgia or in the SEC championship game. If that happens, you're only talking about one SEC team. I think you're really only worried about three teams possibly getting in. Big 12, they've got a couple undefeated teams. Oklahoma State is a guy or is a team that's lingering there. Uh, Big 10, Pac-12 obviously haven't started. Um, and in the ACC, you're worried about Clemson. Uh, and then BYU is kind of lingering there as well. Uh, I don't know if, if they really have the strength of schedule to, to get in, but yeah, I think there's just a handful of teams that you're watching for and you, you kind of got to root for the chaos. You got to root for the losses and you got to hope that the teams that you beat look good by the end of the year. That's it. We put a bow on Notre Dame moving four and overall three and in the Atlantic coast conference with a 12, seven victory over Louisville. Carter's got to get to church. He's going to say some prayers for the Irish. Just kidding. <laughs> but he does have to get to church. I have to get to the store. I need to do some shopping. 
So we will talk to you next week when our own Carter Carls represents the South Bend Tribune at Heinz Field in Pittsburgh. Enjoy your trip to Pittsburgh. We'll talk to you then.